Listener production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. Vladimir Putin has doubled down in Ukraine. Last week, he announced that he was calling up up to 300,000 reservist troops and once again, he threatened nuclear action. We will certainly use all the means available to us and I'm not bluffing. So is a man that tells you he's not bluffing, bluffing? The fact that he felt compelled to say it just drew attention to the fact that he's been bluffing about using nuclear weapons for six months now. Yeah, so we'll look into this. Has Vladimir Putin become more dangerous or more desperate or both? That's our briefing with veteran international editor Peter Harcher. First, today's headlines with Rihanna Patrick. It is Thursday, the 29th of September. The federal government says they'll overhaul our cyber security and privacy laws after the Optus hack that exposed identification details of almost 10 million customers. Clearly, we need better national laws after a decade of inaction to manage the immense amounts of data collected by companies about Australians and clear consequences for when they do not manage it well. Yeah, that's Anthony Albanese in Parliament yesterday. So fines for major data breaches are set to be part of the government's response. Penny Wong, the foreign affairs minister, has written to Optus. She's asked them to pay for the new passports for people wanting to replace them because of the data breach. Meanwhile, further details into the cyber attack have been released with the telco announcing that 15,000 active Medicare numbers have been exposed. Yeah, and those impacted will be contacted in the coming hours and days. So it keeps getting messier and messier. Lots of people have been out renewing their driver's licenses and now passports. So people clearly taking this very seriously, Rihanna, and I guess, you know, taking any measures they can to protect their their data now that they know it's out there. Yeah, and look, I've spent a lot of uh, this week listening to a lot of people phoning into radio to have a conversation about this and some of those complications that have existed of parents whose Medicare numbers had been used by their university student sons to get phones or um, access to the internet, whatever it may be. So the son gets the notification that they've been breached, but it's actually the number for the parent. Mm. Um, and so, you know, them asking the question, do I now need to get a new Medicare card? because my son got this text message. Um, So I think the level of just how complicated this is, I I just don't think we can understand the depth and breadth of of really what needs to be sorted out at this point. And the former AFL coach at the centre of the Hawthorne racism scandal, Alastair Clarkson, has hit back with a new statement saying he's shocked, disappointed and deeply distressed after extracts of the explosive review were leaked to the Herald Sun. Yeah, so these are the extracts from the external review we found out about last Wednesday that alleged Clarkson, along with fellow coach Chris Fagan, intimidated Indigenous players and separated them from their families. Yeah, one player in this review was allegedly told his partner should terminate a pregnancy for the sake of his football career. Now, since those allegations emerged last week, a new independent investigation has been set up And Clarkson, in this new statement, has said he's concerned it won't be a fair process and he's warned that he will not hesitate to protect his position and reputation if necessary. And he has the backing of the AFL Coaches Association. More than 50,000 people have signed a petition slamming Dan Andrews' idea to rename Maroondah Hospital in honour of Queen Elizabeth II. So the critics are angry that an Indigenous place name, Maroondah, will be replaced with the name of a colonial monarch, which they say is a backward step that's disrespectful 
to local Indigenous history. The renaming of the hospital was part of the Premier's $1 billion pledge to rebuild the site. And Andrew's defence is that it's essentially a new hospital with a new name and that many other parts of that community still carry the Maroondah name. Yeah, I'm going to be really interested to see if he has to back down on this one. He's seen by many as a really progressive Premier. So for him to, you know, rename an old hospital, even though lots of it will be redeveloped in the Queen's name, clearly angering a lot of people. I just wonder if he's going to have to backflip on this or whether he'll just write it out. Yeah, and I think this is interesting because it was the first People's Assembly of Victoria, which is the democratic voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as Victoria sort of takes that journey towards treaty that set up this petition in the first place. Um, and I guess they've criticised this decision but have said that if he thinks that they're going to not use their voice to, you know, to only promote and protect Mm. culture, then he's got another thing coming. So I think it it is a really interesting step when we are considering that there are um, a lot of states and territories that are moving towards treaty. And part of that process is truth telling um, that you've already got this name that is derived from two Aboriginal words, meaning throwing and leaves from the local language, and that you would take that back and put a non-Indigenous person's name on this hospital. Yeah, and I just don't see, it's almost like when Tony Abbott knighted Prince Philip. Like, I don't think we need any more things lauding the British royal family. I think, you know, we know who they are. We know their good parts. We also know a lot of their bad parts. Do we really need to name any more things after them? I think the answer is probably no. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot already. And Nico Hines has won the NRL's big award. He has won the Dally M medal. I can't believe it, to be honest. Um, I come here so not very confident one bit. Um, I thought Benny Hunt was taking it out for sure, and or, or Teddy, and five years ago I was sitting at home watching this and never. Th- I was only dreaming about being here. I didn't even think I'd ever be here. Yeah, the Cronulla star polled the highest ever total of 38 points, beating Roosters fullback James Tedesco by five points and Dragons halfback Ben Hunt by six. And in the NRLW, Roosters 5'8", Racine McGregor took home the female Dally M Award, so congrats to her. And in big AFL news, four-time Premiership player and Geelong captain Joel Selwood has announced his retirement from the AFL after, wait for it, 355 games. Um, he's gone out in perfect style, winning the fourth flag on the weekend for the Cats. Nice way to go. All right, Rihanna, we'll catch you again tomorrow. I'm about to talk to Peter Harcher along with Katrina looking at Putin's double down in Ukraine. All right, now to our briefing on Vladimir Putin's double down on Ukraine. So after weeks of Ukraine forces recapturing big swathes of its territory, Vladimir Putin delivered an important televised speech last week, Katrina. Yeah, he made some pretty big announcements and also some big threats, uh, nuclear threats. Russian citizens can be certain that the territorial integrity of our motherland, our freedom and uh, independence shall be secured. I shall stress by all means available to us. And those trying to blackmail us with nuclear weapons should know that the tables can turn on them. So speaking of territorial integrity, part of that speech outlined the plan to hold referendums in four of the Ukraine regions under Russian control, and they are voting on becoming part of Russia. 
I show stress. We will do all we can to ensure safe conditions for holding the referendums for people to be able to express their will. Yeah, but no one in the West really trusts the integrity of these polls, which have been happening over the last few days. But it's part of a plan to expand Russia's western border. And then he would consider attacks across that line as direct attacks on Russian territory, which, Tom, he, he might even use to justify a nuclear response. Yeah, that appears to be the pathway he's setting out. So we're asking in this briefing, how concerned should we be about this? Is Putin just a cornered rat, as Peter Harcher suggested in his column in Tuesday's Age and Sydney Morning Herald? Peter Harcher is the international editor for those two newspapers. Peter, what stood out to you about Vladimir Putin's address last week? The line that made me uh, ultimately gasp and then laugh was the line where he said that he would preserve the right to use all of Russia's weapon systems. This is not a bluff. (laughs) When a man threatening to shoot you says this is not a bluff, it's either because it's a bluff or because it's really not. But either way, the fact that he felt compelled to say it just drew attention to the fact that he's been bluffing about using nuclear weapons for six months now. Yeah, it certainly indicates he has a credibility problem. Exactly. You don't say that otherwise. It's also the kind of line you'd expect to hear from a movie character, not from a world leader. That's an excellent observation, Katrina, and I think uh, that we often make a mistake in treating him as a world leader, as a a statesman of some sort, when really his behaviour and mentality is that of a gangster. Uh, If you look at the way he conducts himself within Russia, consolidating power and holding power, the way he treats, well, everybody, but his political rivals, oligarchs, any source of political resistance, and then the way he treats other countries. It's all gangster stuff. Well, is it starting to backfire? Because in your article last week, Peter, you talked about uh, the meeting he attended in Shanghai and the world leaders there put him into the waiting room. So the tactics sort of turned. As you point out, um, this line about him not bluffing is sounding a little desperate. Um, there were also stories coming out of Russia over the last week that a lot of citizens were deciding to leave the country. There are also protests on the street, plus massive setbacks on the battlefield in Ukraine. How is his special operation really going, and is the tide starting to turn against him? Uh, definitely. It's a grave misjudgment. The entire adventure has been a shocking failure of conception and of execution. And Tom, as you say, uh, he's been downgraded so much in the international uh, pecking order, the power stakes, if you like, that as you said, at that meeting of the Shanghai Cooperation Group last week, four other leaders kept him waiting. (laughs) They turned, as you said, they, they turned his petty power play tactic against him and made him wait. And much of Russia's sovereignty is now being lost to China. China is really the only source of solvency, of Russian national solvency, keeping the country operating on a float at the moment. But it's also, as you say, Tom, a big loss of support and face and confidence at home as well. Yeah, tell us more about that. Because sometimes I I do worry that we in the West are looking for a particular narrative. So we see that some flights are booked out out of Russia and we conclude that everyone's leaving, whereas they could be just outliers, really, statistically. What is your read on 
the way everyday Russians are seeing this? We have to be careful not to be deceived by sample bias. The sample that we're talking about is in a country of 140 million are pretty small. Mm. And you also have to remember that Vladimir Putin in the past hasn't complained uh, or tried to stop citizens leaving the country. He said, let's get rid of them and this will purify our great mother Russia. So he, he welcomes, in the past at least, the departure of people that he thinks aren't supporting his regime. And I can't see that that's changed. I mean, overnight there was a talk in Moscow that the borders were about to be closed or martial law declared, but overnight the Kremlin has said there is no decision to close the border. So they're happy to let it continue, in other words. I don't think we should see it as a fatal blow to Putin's regime. And the numbers on the streets... Well, you know, it's a protest, it's real, it's serious. The emotions are running very high and the country's obviously very anxious. You've spoken to a lot of analysts who've concluded that at the end of the day, it's his pride and his ego that needs to remain intact and I guess his legacy in the history books as well. What are they all saying to you about how this could ultimately play out? What are some of the scenarios here? Russia is not going to disappear and and the people who say uh, Russia must be defeated don't define the terms on which they imagine it being defeated. You're going to have to have terms which Putin will accept. How do you defeat a country with 1,500 deployed nuclear warheads and thousands more in stock? So this is the key problem. What terms would Putin accept for uh, defeat that Zelensky in Ukraine also would accept. So a big part of Putin's announcement last week was the plan to mobilise up to 300,000 reservists and deploy them in this battle against Ukraine. But will they be able to do that? Will they they be able to find that many people? Do they have the generals and the equipment to be able to actually use them properly in battle? And haven't they already used up a lot of their best soldiers and resources in their failed effort so far? I think the answer to all of the first three is no, and the last one is yes. Um, This 300,000 figure uh, is notional replacement of the exhausted troops that they've already had in the field for too long or, or have died or been maimed. Really, this whole enterprise has exposed the fact that the Russian military has no morale, no motivation. Most of the troops don't seem to understand why they're there, and they certainly, once they're told the reality don't support the cause. The whole enterprise has been really revealed as a paper tiger and everything that Putin's doing uh, to try and shore that up doesn't seem to address the fundamental problem. We should look at that worst case scenario that we were talking about earlier, nuclear warfare. Can you talk us through what that looks like, or at least what we know about what that looks like and how Russia's nuclear capability compares to Europe and America's? The worst, worst case is a nuclear exchange of strategic nuclear weapons between Russia and NATO. And that is what really is still considered, I think, even by uh, many Russians as an unthinkable course of action, simply because it would be mutually assured destruction and there wouldn't be much left of Russia and most of Europe would cease to exist as we know it. That's a level of self-destruction and self-harm that truly only a madman and his henchmen would allow to occur. So he would risk that. 
but he would also risk the problem that he'd be contaminating the very places, country that he's trying to dominate. If he detonates even a smaller tactical nuclear weapon, it still leaves nuclear radioactive contamination that would persist for you know a very long time. This is why it seems so implausible. And yet the very war that we're talking about before he invaded also seemed implausible. So that's why so many analysts still managed to take him seriously. Mm. So the potential pathways to those worst case scenarios, the the spectrum of them that you outlined there, um, he, he actually basically set out one of those pathways in the speech last week and they're currently holding um, a vote in those eastern held areas of Ukraine asking locals basically which side they support and that in itself sets up a scenario where he can claim that Russia's being attacked, right, and therefore justifying potentially a pathway to the scenarios you outlined. Yeah, it seems to be exactly what he has in mind, uh, that those referenda, so-called, in Ukrainian areas currently controlled by Russian troops, that those will then create a pretext for him to claim them to be Russian territory if he does indeed proclaim these four areas to be part of Russia and they're under conventional attack, threatening the territorial sovereignty and security of of Russia, then under his doctrine, that would open them for him to use nuclear weapons there. So yes, that's exactly right. And that does uh, seem to be part of his thinking. And again, it's one of the reasons that analysts chide us not to dismiss his threats too lightly. What will you and what should we as observers of this be paying close attention to from here? If you believe in prayer, you would pray and hope that Russia will rise up against this man. But otherwise, it's just going to be following the course of the battle, following the course of the sanctions uh, that seek to degrade Russia's capability and the supplies that seek to support Ukraine's to see how the warfare works out and hope and again pray. There's a lot of praying going on here, isn't it? Mm. That Putin doesn't get to the point of mad desperation of deploying nuclear weapons. That was Peter Harcher, international editor at The Age and Sydney Morning Herald. As I was listening to him, Katrina, I was thinking, it's so annoying that, you know, we're talking about the only pathway out of this is a pathway that doesn't humiliate or embarrass Vladimir Putin. Yeah. In some way, we have to dance around his ego and give him something in this so that he has a plausible way out of this, you know, where basically giving in to an aggressive dictator potentially. Yeah, it's rewarding bad behaviour, it kind of feels like, and it's really icky. But, you know, it is a negotiation. Well, hopefully, hopefully it will be a negotiation. So you do have to concede some ground there if this does play out, I guess, in the least worst way possible. Well, I wonder if that's ground in the literal sense or if there's, there's another way of doing it that doesn't mean giving up more Ukraine territory. And the other thing that, that I wonder about this whole situation is, and I guess this is a, a bit of an optimistic hope, that calling up you know, hundreds of thousands of reservists tanks this conflict from what was a special operation that potentially didn't affect the lives of that many everyday Russians to a situation that does affect a lot of everyday Russians and potentially turns public opinion very much against this war and against Putin. 
Tomorrow on The Briefing, you might have seen snippets of crazy protests coming out of Iran. Uh, This has stemmed from the killing of a 22-year-old woman who wasn't wearing her hijab properly. So we'll find out exactly what's going on there in tomorrow's briefing. Listener.